For today's episode, we're going to be talking about network effects and specifically what to do if you're at the start of a project that requires network effects and you just have no users. So you're trying to build an app, you're trying to build a community, you're trying to create a cryptocurrency, you're trying to create a new language, uh, whatever it may be, you know, if you're trying to create something that relies on connecting people in some way, and if it's something where the more people you have, the the better the product gets, um, you're going to be faced with this challenge of like dealing with a situation where people come to a party and there's no one there and they leave. And therefore, there are never enough people at the party for it to be attractive to new people. Right. So Andrew Chen basically wrote this book called The Cold Start Problem. And he was a, a VP of growth at Uber as well as a VC at A16Z, which is a top tier venture capital firm. And he wrote this book just to move away from vague statements about network effects. So with network effects, like in Silicon Valley, most of the time when we talk about them, we talk about them in terms of Metcalf's law, uh, which says the value of a network increases proportional to the number of uh, units on the network squared. Right. Um, as well as just like a series of like tiny case studies and some language around like first mover advantage and stuff like that. But rarely do people dig into the details of how do you bootstrap a network from scratch? Um, how do you build these massive tech products um, when you just have no users and little resources? Yeah, and I think, you know, just going on Andrew Chen's background for a minute, um, this is not someone who's just sitting on the sidelines and pontificating about this stuff. This is someone who's been in the trenches, like you said, growth at Uber. Um, he's currently serving as a board member at Clubhouse, Substack, and Reforge, which I think are three businesses that all have, have made, have done an amazing job of building these network effects in a short period of time, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Substack is on a massive tear right now. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't checked in on Clubhouse in a while since the pandemic, but at least at the beginning of the pandemic, they kind of had a moment there and they really capitalized on that pretty effectively. Um, and, you know, I, I've heard you sing the praises of Reforge many, many a time. Um, yeah, so there's definitely yeah, a network Reforge. effect going on with, with Reforge as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Clubhouse, you know, I, I never got that into it just because I'm a social media curmudgeon just generally. Um, but it, it, it's definitely growing and it's definitely gotten really big. Um, it's lost some of its like exclusive allure as all social networks do when they kind of, you know, transition out of that initial exclusive phase to like a more general phase. Right. Um, but But according to this book, like Clubhouse, you know, got huge. Right. Right. No, um, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was a there was like a, a real like moment around Clubhouse, I think, especially in the tech circles. Um, it was like the new hotness and everyone really wanted to get in there. And it, like you felt they had they did the thing with the invites and the exclusivity and they did a really good job with that. I think, yeah. you know, part of the tough thing for them is Twitter made Twitter spaces, which is a pretty direct competitor. But like I said, I haven't, I haven't checked on their business in a while. Like you, you know, I'm, 
I'm not I'm not good at social media. <laughs> you're you're good at social media actually. You're pretty damn good at social media. You're learning it, but I'm I don't trying spend... to learn it. I'm not that good at it, but I'm trying to learn it. Yeah, but but yeah. for me I just like I don't really spend much time on social media. Like people that I want to talk to, I just talk to them. It's it's actually sometimes been a bit of a problem because like, you know, we've both moved around a lot in life and I'm just like a ghost online. Like no one can find me. No one knows what I'm doing. No one knows what the hell is going on unless yeah, they listen yeah. to this podcast and they might have some idea of what I'm up to. Right. Right. Uh, and also like it can be hard without social media to like uh, get casual friendships going, you know? Yeah. Because without social media, it's like an all or nothing. Like give me your number and let's hang out or nothing. Right. And so I found with like casual friends, like I end up using like LinkedIn <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah to kind of like take the friendship forward you know <laughs> right so in that sense it's it's uh it, it's it's a, it's it's useful to have but it's also like if you're not careful it takes over your life right you know r slash bjj has been taking over a lot of my time <laughs> so that's awesome yeah but let, let me let me read this description from at&t's annual report in 1900 okay so Theodore Vail, the company president, lays out the core concept of network effects um, without the contemporary name um, and does a really good job of kind of highlighting how it works. So he, he says, a telephone without a connection at the other end of the line is not even a toy or a scientific instrument. It's one of the most useless things in the world. Its value depends on the connection with the other telephone and increases with the number of connections. So... Network effects going way back. And network effects, you know, obviously, like, anywhere there is a network, there's a network effect, even if there's no networked product, right? So even going way back, like, you're talking about languages, currencies, things like that have network effects, you know? Right. The value of knowing English increases with the number of people who know English, you know? Um, and the utility of English doesn't exist if no one else knows it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting to think about, you know, AT and T, right? Um, the turn of the turn of the the twentieth century, or yeah. you know, the the nineteenth to the twentieth century, um, as as being a place where you know they're really thinking about network effects, right? It's yeah, yeah it's a, it's, yeah. A, it's an interesting um, example, but it's it's totally true, right? Like without the build out of you know the telephone telegraph infrastructure he's totally right that it's it's just useless yeah and without other users yeah yeah you know but the telephone is nice um in a way because um the, the way you build out a network like when you have a complete cold start is you want to build an, a stable atomic network which is like the smallest number of people on the network that's self-sustaining. And for a telephone, really, that's two people. Like, if you and I were the only people on Earth who had telephones, it would still be useful to me because I could call you. Yeah, yeah. You know? So that's really nice. The nice thing about telephones is um, you don't need a huge number of people. Whereas if you're dealing with certain network products, like, let's say YouTube. If, I, if YouTube is going to be useful to me, there has to be enough content that what I'm looking for that day can roughly be satisfied. So the burden for YouTube to get enough people on there um, at one time to build a self-sustaining network is much higher. Right. Um, 
but it's also much harder to copy YouTube. So the defensibility of, of network products comes from the difficulty of bootstrapping this initial network and then also comes from the momentum you get once you do so. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's part of why it's so difficult to challenge a company like um, Meta or like Facebook's platform, right? Like, yeah. you know, they have, I don't even know how many billion users now. Um, mm. So trying to build that up is pretty tough. But I guess, you know, people are still are still challenging them, you know, to, uh, like TikTok and stuff. But it's interesting yeah. to think about. Yeah, 100%. And um in terms of meta and TikTok, one thing that was interesting to me from this book is, at least at first, technical depth tends to not be as crucial as a moat um, for a lot of these like network products. Uh, it, it really depends on the products. For example, for Zoom, there, there was a significant technical component, but simplicity and bootstrapping the initial network um, and kind of the the growth side of things like activating users removing friction um and and cultivating and maintaining the network and growing it in the right way um, tends to be a lot more important so for example um instagram sold to facebook with just like 13 employees you know and i don't think they really had this incredible technical depth compared to some startups out there and like a lot of these social media companies are like that right like mark zuckerberg you know, Facebook, like when he started, yes, um, did, did, did he have a computer science background? I think he did, right? Uh, who? Mark Sorry. Zuckerberg? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, um, yeah. I, but I, but I he wasn't like, like, you know, a senior engineer who had like extreme technical depth, you know? Um, yeah, so, definitely. So, so that's definitely one interesting not. thing. I think, I'm pretty sure he was at Harvard for... Um, uh for for cs yeah but by the time zuck began classes at harvard in 2002 he had already achieved a reputation as a programming prodigy he studied psychology and computer science well despite all your years of studying psychology you still haven't figured out how humans work zuckerberg (laughs) 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 just kidding just kidding not an easy one he's still trying to learn to love yeah yeah but facebook's an interesting case because it also speaks to um another thing that's really important when you're building out this initial network um which is how you seed the network and who you seed the network with so facebook used you know harvard.edu email addresses and by doing so they built like extreme density in this tiny little niche so people you know in, in your personal like, network are all on the product. And and that makes it, you know, more valuable to you because it's like you go to you're going to this party where like you're already familiar with all the clientele. Um so for for all of these products like having a super dense micro network that they could kind of like saturate was very very important. Um so for Uber, you know, they, they did it literally on a city by city basis. Um, and each city team had extreme, um, what do you call it, freedom to approach knocking over that market their own way. So each city would do it totally differently. But 
they'd use you know local events they'd use things like letting you call for soft serve ice cream using uber or celebrating san francisco pride with uber calling it a lion dance on chinese new year through uber that's pretty so awesome. they had this kind of like yeah like do do whatever is necessary attitude to building that initial uh, segment yeah that's interesting that's interesting um it makes sense also um yeah uber's a tricky one for that you know talking about the minimal self-sustaining network right mm-hmm. so if we were to talk about that you know first of all it has to be you could probably constrain it to one like city or geography mm-hmm. um but you need a critical mass of enough drivers and enough riders such mm-hmm. that if i'm a driver I'm getting rides, I'm making money. And if I'm a rider, I can get a ride, you know? And that's a, I wonder what that number is for them, um, you know, yeah. in a given geography or like how they, how they were measuring that and where they figured out like when they kind of crossed that threshold. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that number, according to this book, is 15 minutes. And for Uber, the way they did it is they had a pay to play strategy. So they would pay drivers hourly at first until they you know saturated the market enough that wait times went down to 15 minutes or less and then they'd switch off to um you know a commission-based model and they had a a company-wide leaderboard for which which local markets can make this shift the quickest um and so they use that kind of like healthy competition and decentralized leadership to to tip those markets over Um, that's a really interesting way to do it and i wonder um I feel like in doing it that way, like one of the great benefits you would get is you would be able to prove out all of these different strategies. Like you're essentially running micro experiments in all of these different markets. Then Mm -hmm. as you add more and more markets, you have this growing toolbox of strategies that you've tried and you could say, okay, Mm -hmm. this worked in New York, you know, London is a, you know, kind of more culturally similar city to New York than say you know, LA based on the geography and what people are doing, the kind of people that are there. So maybe we can use these tools there. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. 100%. And, and that's one thing he mentions in the book is like, if you can build one self-sustaining micro network, you can build more. And a lot of these companies took that approach as well. Like Tinder, the way they did it is they threw a birthday party for the most hyper social undergrads they could find on the USC campus. And they made downloading Tinder on your phone a requirement of getting in, but they made it like a really nice party. Um, and the day after that, they had 500 downloads and the retention was like massive. And they had three hours a day of usage from those people. Um, and then they used that same playbook at a bunch of other adjacent campuses and kind of scaled from there. And each subsequent, you know, micro market, that they knocked over became easier and easier and with facebook too it's like college to college to college with dropbox they first uh knocked over the domino of stanford's continuing education program and then they went and did other local bay area colleges and went from there so that strategy is very um you're right that it does get easier as you as you knock over each one yeah yeah, yeah. and i bet that feeling of you know Getting to that first self-sustaining um, market must be uh, amazing. amazing. Or that self-sustaining yeah. network, yeah. 
I can't. That's that's got to be like a. I mean, that's going from zero to one, right? Like that's what it's all about, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And speaking of zero to one, that's one similarity between like all these different startup methodologies. Is Peter Thiel says, you know, monopolize a small market. Andrew Chen says, you know, build density in a tiny niche so you can kick off these network effects and you can kind of copy and paste your strategy from niche to niche. Um, and Clayton Christensen in the Innovator Solomon stuff, he says, target a small market so that you can cater to their needs more cost effectively. And therefore you're like, you know, technology maturity curve can like bisect the curve of more mature technologies that are um, incrementally innovating on like higher end segments. Yeah. Um, but in every case, it's like target small markets that people are ignoring, you know? Right, right. And I think that's, you know, I think that's one of those things that goes to show, well, one, like how fortunate we are to be, you know, if, if you're an entrepreneurial minded person to be living right now and not even, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago, because yeah. the the quality of, you know, information that we can access, the, the hard lessons that people have learned that we can kind of synthesize and integrate in this way is, is really amazing. Um, you know, yeah. going on, back to AT&T Bell Labs, but even, you know, earlier than that. And then, you know, as recent as like Uber, right? And Tinder mm-hmm. and Clubhouse. It's like, um, we just have so much information to draw. But anyway, the, the, where mm-hmm. I was going with that is one thing that's that's interesting to me in, in all this stuff is like, you kind of have to unlearn what you would think, like if you're a lay person, you haven't done much, you know, research on this stuff, mm-hmm. your intuition for what makes business sense mm-hmm. is probably wrong. And yeah. you have to like do a lot of studying and effort to build a different kind of intuition um, in order to actually make the right choices. Because if you go talk to someone, you know, and you tell them, I'll give you two business ideas. One has a massive market, like anybody could use it. Um, And the other one has this really tightly constrained target market that we're focusing on. Um, Which idea do you want? You know, I think most people would intuitively gravitate towards the huge market. Um, But that's clearly, you know, the wrong choice for an early stage venture. In most cases. Uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, in my opinion, for sure, especially as like a designer, you know, like, I've had this conversation with senior designers before who don't understand what I'm saying when I say this, but like you need to design for someone, like a human being with a real problem. Yeah. You know, you can't design for a top down trend that you eloquently spoke to investors about and like raised a bunch of money based on FOMO. Like that's not a, a person with a problem that can be solved, you know, or a company with a problem that can be solved. Um, that's not saying you can never start a business that way, but that is saying ultimately someone is going to have to have an impetus to buy the product. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I've, I've noticed this a lot. Like for a while I was like, um, giving out like free time to have people like, you know, if they want to share like a digital product with me, I can give them free feedback. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people had a really hard time swallowing the feedback of like, at first, what niche segment are you going to target and how is that going to tip over the next domino so you can target more and more like adjacent segments to then eventually capture this larger market? A lot of people want to spread the peanut butter like really broad 
Mm-hmm. Um, because it feels like you're giving up this like huge like opportunity. When in reality, you're never going to be able to light the log on fire by just like waving a match up and down its length forever. Right. That's a great analogy. I love that analogy. Uh, Who's that from? I, I think that's from... Um, the crossing the chasm guy. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is that from crossing? Because yeah. when you <laughs> yeah, were talking it's... about the the dominoes and the markets, it's like you know you mentioned Clayton Christians a couple other books. Crossing the chasm is another great one that talks about yeah. this very concretely and how like mm-hmm. you will not be able to cross the chasm unless you're doing it in a systematic way um, and you're providing this like whole product experience. And in order to do that, you need to have some sort of a niche that you're working from. And it's like you go from one to the next to the next. And you accumulate, you know, the product quality, the understanding of the market, the technical acumen, the features, like all of these things that you need um, in order to really scale a business. You know, you know who else has talked about stuff like this? Hmm. Um, we should cover the Crossing the Chasm, by the way. We should. Yeah, that's, that's a great that's book. That's another great book. Yeah. Um, shout Jack out to. Ma. Oh, yeah. yeah go sorry. ahead. Well, I was just going to say yeah. shout out to uh, Jim Yarez. He'll probably never see this, but he was the, uh, when I was a lowly intern, he was the senior vice president of um, uh, essentially the sales org at uh, uh, the company I worked at, Illumio. And um, he recommended me that book. He actually recommended it to all of us interns. We were having lunch with him, which was mm-hmm. awesome of him as well. Um, and uh, I, I remember grabbing it and reading it and being like, wow, like, um, this is awesome. And I could see like how he's using this roadmap to kind of guide where we're going with our go-to-market strategy. It was pretty awesome. That is awesome. You got to love people who like seek information and then apply it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a basic concept, but it's, not <laughs> that common. it's it is surprisingly <laughs> uncommon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you're going to say about Jack Ma. Yeah. Jack Ma had an interesting way of putting this too. Um, semi-related where he was like if you want to start a business just start with the people like around you and you know provide value to them and exchange value and buy and sell with each other and then expand the network outwards from there which literally speaks to exactly this because it's a tiny your your friends and family the people around you are a tiny niche segment and they are a meaningful network with real relationships and if you do tip that domino you can tip adjacent dominoes from there and you probably have uh, various axes by which you're you're similar to, to one another right um, so so that was an interesting one from from jack ma yeah so so that's i think you know one of the early lessons you can read in, in any of this entrepreneurial reading is you focus on that initial target market um mm-hmm. i guess another one um I, that, that i can think of because i'm seeing it in the reflection of my video right now um shoe dog so in phil knight's book He also talks about this exact thing where with Nike and the founding of Nike, um, they started with um, serious track runners, right? So um, there's the one particular guy who was like a phenomenon in Oregon. I'm forgetting his name right now, but they really started with like, we need technical shoes for track runners and we're going to start with this market. And they really built like the technically best product him and his kind of like mad scientist track coach from college yeah. together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's Bill Bowman, yeah. Um, but again, it's the same thing. I mean, this is, if you look at uh, many of the great business success stories and, and literature that we have in the last 
20, 30 years, it's like a super common theme. Um, and one that, you know, I think anyone can, w- would be good to internalize and, and think about, or I'll give you another example. So, um, you know, my mother-in-law, uh, Lara, she started a business a few years ago, um, doing tree care. Okay. So she's in, she's a, uh, a forester and an arborist. She's been doing this for a long time, working with city governments and different things. And she decided she wanted to kind of strike out on her own and, and do her own business. Um, she started with the market essentially of um, Indian immigrants in um, the suburbs of Minnesota, um, in and around kind of where our parents, my, you know, our parents live, um, and that was a hugely self-referential kind of micro market. Oh, yeah, and the referrals that she got throughout that really allowed her to like um, expand out her business, um, because of that. Um, so it's not just like, you know, the, the tech product, it's not just the, you know, VC funded play that we're trying a hundred X in the next five years. It's also the small business, you know, it's also the bakery. It's also the forestry service technician, um, who can, who can learn from, from these lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a hundred percent true. I think it's a hundred percent true. I, th- I think for, for stuff like that, it's the focus it's the cut through it's it's and and it's the focus and the cut through that then gives something that's worthy of being talked about to people who are in the same unit of conversation that allows it to work you know because you're catering something to for example like the indian immigrant community in minnesota uh, in a way that resonates with them and they talk to each other in a meaningful way so it spreads um so you lose out on some of the like network benefits uh, there, but in the sense of like your tree care service probably doesn't directly improve from having more users, right? Um, or or reach a saturation earlier unless you like increase the ceiling in various ways. Um, right, right, yeah. It's it's not yeah. like an inherently network driven product, you know. There's of course, although the flip side of that, right, in a way, is like economies of scale right so in a way yeah yeah isn't everything a network product because as you you know to take the tree care example the more clients you have you can start hiring people who are specialists in different aspects of the tree care and you can afford to have those people you know on your staff and spread them around because you have enough work for them to do and does that improve the quality of the product you can deliver Again, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I still think it's not quite like a network product, but you know, it's just interesting. But I to think your about. point. I take your point. Or like you know, take something like cars, right? Like the car itself is not really a network product in that it doesn't directly help multiple you know people connect with each other using the product. I mean, it can, but that's not the core purpose of it. However, more cars means more. Um, money for infrastructure, roads, fueling stations, Michelin guides, you know, travel guides, like all this different stuff, motels, suburbs, you know, Um, and therefore it's like more convenient to own a car. So I think there are a lot of businesses that don't sell networked products where network effects are still important. And that's a good point. I mean, what is a business where that wouldn't be the case that having more users wouldn't improve the business, you know? 
I, I guess like a elite nightclub or like a elite university might be cases where you know saturation is very early because exclusivity is a key part of the value prop. Yeah, I think those are good examples. I think artisanal businesses, you know, maybe is another good example. So if you're a you know a, a, a pottery studio that makes handcrafted plates for Michelin starred restaurants, um, yeah, yeah, w- would getting another. 50,000 users or, or customers help you would actually degrade the quality of your product because of the like handmade nature of, of each piece. It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. But ju- just to, along those lines, and I, I think it probably would degrade the quality of what you're doing because at that level of craftsmanship, you only have so many people who can do that work. Yeah. You know, uh, at least you'd hope so. Otherwise, you should probably be doing it at a higher level, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but in generality, like this concept basically is like at first when you build a network, there's no one on it and you have anti-network effects present. So you come to the party, there's no one there. Um, you go to the store, there's no products there and you leave. And the next guy comes and they leave and so on and so forth. Eventually, by hook or by crook, um, you you get to the point where you hit this threshold. And in population dynamics, it's called an LE threshold. After that, now you have positive network effects that start to build. Eventually, you hit a point where there's network saturation, and that's like when the party's overcrowded and the experience starts to degrade because there's too many people. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about here is like the point of saturation for different businesses um, as well as like various other factors in the life cycle of the network. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's like, yeah, getting to that first, you know, um, I forget the term you you used to describe atomic it, network. Yeah, that first yeah. atomic network is is really like, um, that's really where the you know the the money is made, if you will. It's like the first thing that really allows you to to move forward. The irony to me is it's both hard and easy. And, and here's what I mean by that. Like, okay, we haven't, we haven't launched our app yet. But for our app, I think what an atomic network would look like is probably two people. Like, that would probably be the smallest stable network to have a book club on the app. Um, and I think to build, you know... 50 atomic networks of two people or more uh would just take like legwork yeah you know yeah whereas to do it any other way would be possibly harder and maybe not possible at all you know yeah yeah Um, so it's one of that's what they say in in the book is they're like most people are afraid of um of of doing this because it's it's just hard to go out and like show your stuff to people and just be rejected and, you know, have to actually like interact with people and do it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which I totally understand. Yeah. 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 I was listening to some podcast some time ago. I think it was maybe, it was maybe DoorDash, maybe the founders of DoorDash and, um, you know, similar, just like putting in the legwork, they were talking about how when they didn't have enough, you know, drivers for their network, 
they were the drivers. Like they would just stop writing code, get in their car and go like pick up grocery or, you know, pick up someone's lunch and deliver it to them um, until they got enough users where they could pull in drivers. That's the, that's the perfect example. That is, that is a perfect example. And that strategy in this book, they call it Flintstoning. Cause it's like Fred Flintstone's car. You know how he like, just like runs and holds the car. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a bunch of companies who've done stuff like this. Like, like Reddit, the guys who founded that, they were the only people posting links for a long time until they created bots that just scrape news websites and post links. <laughs> That's a good idea, honestly. Yeah, it is. And PayPal created bots that like buy and sell stuff on eBay, but only accept PayPal. <laughs> That's a good move as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And it's the kind of move where... Reminds me of Shoe Dog a little bit where it's like, until you read that someone has done it and it's all worked out, it doesn't seem like a thing you can do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just having the the audacity to do something like that, you know, (laughs) the sheer audacity to be like, yeah, you know what? My vision is that this is going to be a platform that the world uses to exchange money. And the way I'm going to do that is by making fake bots to like buy and sell on eBay. <laughs> or, you know, the way I'm going to do that is by getting in my car and, and delivering um, meals. Or, you know, I'm going to put like 20 boxes of shoes in my trunk and I'm going to the track meet and I'm going to try to convince some people to run in my shoes at this track meet. Yeah, or I'm going to go to Japan and tell them I have a company when I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Knight is but, awesome but, for that. Maybe that's a book oh, we yeah. should cover at some point. I love that book. I would love, yeah, I would love to cover that book. That book's a good one to just like get your hustle going too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, I I think that that's the ultimate lesson for me of like bootstrapping the the Atomic Network is just do it by any means necessary. Yeah, if you have to pay, pay. If you have to like. You know, post the shit yourself or drive door, you know, grub up yourself, do it. <laughs> like, do whatever you can. But one strategy that's not included in those two is like this strategy called stay for the tool or come for the tool, stay for the network. And this strategy is probably for, in our case, the one that applies most closely because, you know, we have this individual true tool that's uh, a gamified reading tracker that keeps you on track with your reading and nudges you and, gives you you know a beautiful dashboard of all the stuff you've read thematically and in quantity and quality all this kind of stuff um but you are then able to connect with people and do challenges and have book clubs and uh, various like social features like that and a lot of businesses have used that to bootstrap their initial network because you don't need you you get value from the product even when there's no one there that Do you have some uh, examples from the book offhand on on businesses that did that or use that strategy? Yeah, so Dropbox is a good one. So Dropbox, most of their high-value customers that pay are customers that use collaboration features. So it's actually a very network-driven product. But initially, the the way they hook people in is like positioning themselves as a tool um, in that they were a replacement for USB drives. They were just this magic folder on your computer that syncs across all your computers where you can drop stuff. Um, and Instagram is another great example. Like you were mentioning, uh, you were listening to a 
podcast with Kevin Sistrom. And if you want to talk about that example. Yeah, so he's basically talking about how, I mean, I think they were trying a bunch of different ideas. I listened to this a long time ago, so I might be a little uh, hazy here, but they're trying a bunch of different ideas to get their thing to pop off. But eventually what they found was like, I think his, his partner's wife or something like loved the filters. She was like, these are awesome. Like you should focus on these filters. Um, and then eventually like they got to the point where people were using Instagram just for the filters because at that time, like smartphone cameras weren't that good yet. You know, like I can take a picture with my iPhone 13, whatever pro max. And it's, it's actually insane. Like it looks like a digital, like a DSLR sometimes to my untrained eye. But, but back then, um, you know, they, they didn't have, uh, that quality of camera and those filters like essentially made the pictures look good um and then i think you were saying how now um you know 80 percent of instagram photos don't even use filters at all yeah 100 percent. and interestingly prior to instagram there was this tool called hipstamatic which all it did was apply filters to pictures and it was extremely popular um and it was actually, you know, a featured app in the App Store, but it was pay to play. It wasn't free. And it had the friction of like you apply the filters and you save the photo on your phone and then you, you, you know, share the photo out on various social networks. Also, they didn't have the growth benefits of being a network driven app. So they weren't able to leverage like viral marketing or referrals or word of mouth in the same way that a network driven app is able to because you're not, it's not a core part of the app to invite your friends. It doesn't affect your usage of the app to invite your friends. Right. So Instagram kind of like took that, that tool um, and segued it seamlessly into a network that allows you to apply the tool socially. Um. And you can see the the powerful impact of that, the tool versus the tool plus the network. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So another aspect of the network thing that I think is very important to consider is who's who's on the network. And I think with this, an invite only strategy is interesting to consider. So when I've, th- I've thought about invite only strategies in the past, I've thought that the main benefit is FOMO. Like Mm -hmm. people see it and they, you know, it's like hot because they can't get access to it. There's scarcity and they want in. But according to this book, FOMO isn't the main benefit. The main benefit is you see the network with the type of people you want in the app. And by making it invite only, you're able to grow the network along the lines of the types of people you invited. So for Clubhouse, they invite a bunch of VCs and entrepreneurs, they give them invites, and the app grows with similar people. Um, and therefore, the, the quality of the conversations on the app are such that there's a draw there. Right. So I think that's something for us to think about, too, is um, not necessarily invite only, though maybe so, but who are the people and what are the types of conversations that we would like people to have on the app? Because it's not about the complex interface necessarily. It's like, and it's not about the fact that we have group functionality. It's what groups are there. On Goodreads, there are groups. 
most of them are shit. Yeah. Complete shit. Um, so it's not like they, they have a bad, I mean, they do have a bad UI and it's not like, it's not good, but that's not the main thing. Like Reddit doesn't have a super sophisticated UI, but it works because of a who, who's on the various like subreddits and, and who's putting love attention into it. What, what types of conversations are happening? Right. I think the other thing that Reddit has done or that's really interesting about Reddit and its network effects is like um, because of this whole notion of like subreddits being these individual kind of forums, like they have, you know, countless atomic networks, right? Like a small subreddit with a bunch of passionate people is an atomic network. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I would argue even... probably more so than some of the really larger, like massive subreddits where it's just like memes and there's like hundreds of thousands of uh, users in there. Um, you know, the, yeah. the small like niche subreddits are really like self-referential markets that are bringing people in and stuff like that compared to, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. Whereas like with something like Instagram, it is really about like, the one you know large overarching network and of course there's still like niches within that there's your friend group and there's a whole social graph and all that but um it's not as focused on like we're gonna help people make these like different like small atomic um uh uh, networks yeah and actually it's a great example for us because you know the, the the vision there could be you know people have having those like small meaningful book clubs and things that they're really passionate about you know like i could see you know a classics community that really cares about that who who are interested enough to like maintain and moderate and administer a small community like that or people who are interested in reading startup related books or people who are interested in reading whatever uh british novels of manners or thrillers or whatever else you know um so i think there's a lot of lessons uh, to be learned there, there for us and i think good uh, good reads on the flip side is much more general yeah yeah but they've done like a pretty decent job overall and i think really what it comes down to is like i guess before them there really was no product like it right that's part of it probably but i'm sure there's more to it it'd be interesting to learn about their growth trajectory and like how they did what they have done that would be interesting that would be interesting I think casual contact is a lot. So like, or sorry, um, what's it called? Customer generated content because customers go online, they put quotes from books on Goodreads and the quote pages are the main vector by which people discover Goodreads. So you look up GK Chesterton quotes. And if I do that right now, uh, let me see. Let's see what comes up. Goodreads, number one, number one answer. (laughs) So... That customer-generated content, as far as quotes, has really been Goodreads' biggest uh, growth vector. I, when I was looking on looking at them on Google Analytics, that's kind of what I was seeing too. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I've I've seen that as well. You look up um, quotes by any author, really, and and they are towards the top. You know, I, I think one conclusion for me for this book is. We should figure out for our project, like, you know, who, who, what types of people do we want to, and what types of conversations do we want on the app? We should recruit those people and then we should be in constant dialogue with them about like, 
whether the app is suiting their needs. You know, if we do that with a small number of people to start with and really saturate like some small niche, be it our friends and family or, you know, some sub-segment of the SF tech community or whatever it may be, um, you know, people at my jujitsu gym, uh, whatever it may be. I think that would be a pretty, pretty fruitful approach to solving the cold start problem. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, I think for us, our biggest obstacle now is is just, you know, um, we were talking about this earlier, but just buckling in and writing code, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, uh, I think that's something that's tough given our, our day jobs. And that's always what, what we're figuring out here with the side project um, is, you know, how do we have the energy and the time to devote to... Um, really deliver on our execute on our vision because it takes a ton of time and effort um to get there um yeah yeah it's just about rubber putting the rubber to the road um so to speak and and you know grinding it out 100 percent. yeah the man in the arena podcast i was talking about that where like just trying to do anything is super humbling and super hard yeah dude it Um, really is it really is yeah, but it's it's good because when you try to do things, you like respect people. You know, like last night at the party I was at, this guy was like, "Oh, I you know I got really lucky and I um, I went to law school and I was like you know um, interning for these judges and now I write appellate briefs for like the Supreme Court." And I was like, "Yeah, it sounds like you work really fucking hard." <laughs> and and I don't know if I always would have like felt that way, which is kind of dumb. I mean, it should be for many people. I'm sure it's obvious that he worked really hard. But as I've tried to do things, I realize that it's really hard to do things. Yeah. You know? It, it is. Um, it sure yeah. is. It sure is. And it's really easy to not do things, I think, is the other thing, you know, which, oh, which yeah. sounds really like, like kind of a silly statement. But, like, in all seriousness, like, you know, whether it's a business or fitness or, you know, even just, like, being Anything. a good partner, being a good friend, you know, it's a thousand times easier to sit on the couch and, uh, you know, not call your mom (laughs) than it is to like, you know, make that phone call and and do those things. Speaking of which, shout out Mima. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Woo. Um, I'll call you after this. That's my plan. (laughs) (laughs) But I I called this morning when she was too much of a social butterfly. (laughs) Yeah. So she talked to me for like five minutes and she's like, yeah, we're going to a concert later tonight. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Like you're more parents, social than me. <laughs> I know. And your parents are cooler than you. It's kind of rough, but you know, it, I know. it is what it is. <laughs> Dude, yes. On the theme of like how it's hard to do anything, truly, like last night, um, you know, we went to this party, we hung out with our, with our friends. These are people we like. And we've seen them once since we moved here. And yeah. like we lived like like two floors like below. Jules is one of Jules' best friends in Chicago for like a year and a half. And we saw them like four times. Not because we don't like hanging out with them, but just because of the sheer inertia. Um, and yeah, I think just everything, with, with everything, the inertia is like um, something that needs to be needs to be overcome. For sure, man. I totally feel that. I mean, I have a lot of great people great friends who i would 
love to spend more time with that I've made since I moved here. And I, I really don't see a lot of them that often just because uh, of this whole thing, right? Like, you know, I have to break out of all the things that I'm doing, right? Like I'm trying, I'm working a lot. I'm working on this a lot, you know, I'm trying to hang out with you, family, you know, I've got my partner, all of these things. Right, um, right. And then it's like, you know, make the time to, to drive down to SF and see some of my friends and hang out. Um, it's it's tough to decide to do that. And on my, you know, free evening to not just like sit <laughs> and like read or like, you know, play some video games and just unwind. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And <clears throat> I think that's one thing that. I think I'm going to have to start doing to like move this stuff forward is like, I'm going to have to start doing some stuff in on some evenings too, which I've tried not to do. I've tried to just work on it in the mornings and then evenings do nothing. But I think realistically, at least one evening, maybe eventually two evenings per week, I'm going to have to like work on it. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm also going to have to not do an increasingly proliferating number of martial arts activities. <laughs> 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 yeah i think i have like almost the opposite like i'm probably gonna have to start like going to bed and waking up at reasonable times and maybe maybe even doing some stuff in the morning uh i don't like the morning. that's how i feel about the evening <laughs> <laughs> yeah in the evening i just want to turn my brain off and sit you know but in the morning i just want to be asleep <laughs> you know what i was thinking recently though about this stuff, like, I thought about this last week, and it actually just made it a little easier for me to work on stuff, where I was like, when I'm relaxing, let's say I'm watching TV or playing a video game, I'm staring at a screen, and I'm, like, doing something that has kind of, like, a storyline, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, like, a sense of progression, and it's entertaining, and so what is the difference between that and just working on the app or working on the podcast, like, they're both on a screen. They're both like, you know, have like a challenge to them. They're both entertaining in some way. Like it, it really should not be that different to my brain, you know? So I've just been trying to convince myself that it's like the same. <laughs> Honestly, that's pretty ambitious. <laughs> At least for me, like I think the difference there is like how, what percentage of my brain am I using? So if I'm playing yeah. like Halo, I'm probably using like, eight percent of my brain but if i'm trying to like yeah. you know write some code i'm probably using closer to 80 percent um yeah yeah that's that's really the difference i think for me at least yeah i would agree and yeah i i would agree that's what jules said too <laughs> <laughs> that's well, i'm trying hey, to ignore that part yeah whatever true. works if, if you can convince yourself of that that's awesome like all oh, more power to you I've been able to move the needle on it a little bit, you know, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's still just so much shit to do. Like, anyway, we don't have to bore the listeners with the litany of things we have to do with the project. Yeah, yeah, we'll just <laughs> that. okay. So, so back to the book. Um, what do you got for me? What do I have? Um, yeah, so I would say just like one more thing. For the sake of mind blindness, let me just like underscore specifically how network effects make it easier for your business to, to grow and become defensible and stuff like that. You and I kind of like know this from just like being in the industry, but 
Um, to be explicit, let's take a product like YouTube. As you have more and more users, you have more video content. As you have more video content, the platform is able to satisfy users' needs more deeply and increase engagement. Also, you have more vectors by which new people can be brought onto the platform. So it makes user acquisition easier and cheaper. Um, on top of that, you know, you have all this engagement, you're pro providing all this value, you're able to use that data to identify high value customers and monetize more easily as well. So across engagement, acquisition, and monetization, you have these massive benefits as you scale the network. And the other thing too is like, people can copy the product, but they can't copy the network. Right. That's why, you know, something like, you know, when YouTube made these like little shorts uh, or when, was, was it Instagram that tried to copy Snapchat and did the little story? Yeah, yeah, Instagram stories. Yeah. Facebook has them too. Everyone has them now. Yeah, but that didn't kill Snapchat. Like Snapchat still exists. Yeah. Um, and, and the point being is like, you can copy the, the functionality, but you can't copy the network. Um, and that that's pretty scary to me, honestly. And because, you know, as a product person, it's nice to just think of like, oh, we're going to make this great tool and we're going to put it out there and it's going to provide value. And that's going to be the happily ever after. But the reality is all you've done at that point is telegraph to everyone. This is valuable. And now you have people with massive war chests who, you know, have had a de-risked opportunity put on their plate to go and take over. Yeah. Yeah. So to, so to avoid that, you kind of almost like need a network of some kind, or you need other defensibility, you know, maybe a technical moat, maybe uh, patents if you're, you know, I don't know what the right word is, if you're lame like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah. whole mutually assured destruction with patents um, is, is an interesting one in the tech world. But um, yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. I'm trying to think about, so what I'm thinking about right now um, is... If you look at the social media companies um, and, you know, kind of in particular meta and how they've essentially. So I think what's interesting is like they've had competitors come up, build really strong products and networks and then just bought them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like WhatsApp, like Instagram. Um, those Instagram, are dude, they're, they're kind of like pussies dude they sold so quick <laughs> i mean i'm sure they had a, a lot of reasons for doing that i think when i was listening to the podcast part of it was like their users were scaling so fast that they genuinely felt that like facebook's technical expertise and funding would really help them meet their users needs like it wasn't just a, a money thing it was like a yeah. we think that the business will be more successful in in doing this that makes sense. That 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 does. I mean, that does make sense. But man, that was so quick. Why not raise another round at that point? Yeah, yeah. Although I don't know what when was the Instagram acquisition. I mean, they got a billion dollars for it for thirteen people, so that's not bad. I mean, yeah, but but to be fair, like that is definitely the biggest steal uh, of an acquisition in tech in the last many years. Um, yeah, but. I'm trying to look at what what was the year of this? Uh, 2012. Okay. So I guess what I'm trying to think about or where I'm getting at is like, was the funding environment in 2012 
you know, it, it definitely wasn't what it is today. It's never been what it is today. But was it good enough that they would have been able to raise around on the, fa- the terms that they were looking for relative to Facebook's offer? It's, it's hard to say. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Also, maybe they just, you know, look, I, I like playing games on sandbox mode, okay? Like, you know, Rilu always wants to play Minecraft on survival mode. I prefer to play creative mode. I just like having the resources and then I get to build it and have a good time. Yeah, you know, so I, I I get that, or like surviving Mars that game like when you when you play with like funding and when you don't have funding, it's a big difference. Like one is like Donner Party and one is like, <laughs> you know, you're just like thriving Metropolis and Mars. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one more thing I wanted to call out is. Taking crypto as an example of how you can financially incentivize people to be part of a network without necessarily giving them cash. Um, so, so a lot of marketplaces will do this where they subsidize one side of the market, usually the hard side, uh, which is sellers for marketplaces. So, so that's something for us to think about too, is like if we're trying to well, there's so much for us to think about with this. Like, you know, to me, the hard side of our marketplace is people who are willing to like organize shit. Right. Like the person who's willing to organize a book club and like hassle everyone and get them going. If we can have tools that serve that hard side of the marketplace, there will be be a there there for the easy side of the marketplace, which is people who want to engage have those conversations read more you know have an intellectual life outside of the academy and just like you know use their brains and live an examined life right right read yeah the books interesting to think about um yeah yeah i think the tough thing for me there is like <laughs> i'm always a person who who doesn't want to be that you know um like um, yeah that's fair i had a friend who like we, he wanted to get into playing D, and i was like really down but like i would never be a dungeon master um because of the the sheer cognitive burden of like organizing everything and and hurting the cats of getting everyone in there at the same time and, and all of those things and i think i would feel similar about a book club except for like a very small one you know like w- when we do it with you and and Ridu, um that that i can deal with but um yeah i just hate having to organize things for a bunch of people <laughs> yeah but that that speaks to a couple of things like that speaks to the small size of the atomic network for a book club yeah where with with two people you can do it you know like if you and your partner want to like read read a book together uh you and a close friend you know you and you, you and your brother in our case like um it's it's very easy to to do that at a small scale and the sad thing about that is it's easy to um emulate right but that's where i think the niche aspect and and the the actual specific nature of the conversations on a given platform matter you know yeah 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 so so a lot a lot of food for thought there 
Um, I think I think that's more or less all I have. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in this book, a ton of different case studies and examples, but but I think with what you have there, if any of you guys are working on a, a project, you're trying to get something started, this is enough to kind of underscore for you whether or not you're working on a networked product, how to how to add a network component to your product, how to bootstrap an initial network, some of the strategies you can take. If if you actually implement that stuff and get to any reasonable point, you're probably motivated enough to like read this book and right. get the rest of the detail for yourself. Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. Yeah. And if you do that or not and you want to talk about it with us, you know, we would love to hear from you. Uh, so drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io. Um, also, I, I recently discovered that there was an issue with our Google Groups settings. So some of your emails may not be coming through um, or were not coming through. I was getting some of them, but not some of the others. I managed to work out those issues. So if you ever sent an email and it got bounced, I fixed all the filters and stuff. So just uh, resend that and we will get back to you promptly. And for all of you other ones that I we have been communicating with, uh, we love hearing from you. It's been really awesome. Yeah, actually, speaking of which, one of our uh, our Twitter followers has suggested a book that we're going to do on the podcast at some point. So Matt, MattOperator.Crypto suggests this book called The Year 2000 um, by this allegedly brilliant German scientist written in 1967. So if you recommend stuff to us on there... Uh, at rdmr underscore io you can engage with us there you can you know tell us how you feel about this episode other episodes uh, and also share share you know suggestions for what to read on the podcast and also check out reading rebellion shorts it's a short daily podcast we put out right now we're talking about the great political theories and specifically we're talking about the greeks and we'll see if we ever get off the greeks but there's a lot of content. I know. There the really Greeks. is. <laughs> there really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, thanks to Andrew Chen for uh, writing this book. Maybe we'll send him the podcast and, uh, you know, see see what he thinks. Yeah. Uh, if you want to talk, yeah. Andrew, drop us a line. Contact at rdmr.io. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and yeah, uh, tell us what we got, what we missed or what we got wrong. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely do that. And the last thing is we gave a Mother's Day shout out to Mima. So I also want to give a Mother's Day shout out to Lara um, and to um, Mrs. Ryder, uh, yeah, Trish, Jules' yeah. mom, Trish. Yes. Happy Mother's Day to uh, all three of you. And uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Hope you had a good day. Thanks for, you know, being uh, a mom. It's a hard job. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, it is it is a hard job. It's a hard job. Yeah. I have something like related to that to tell you about, but I'll just tell you about it after this. It's like just look like, unrelated to anything, but Alright. Anyway, goodbye. <laughs> see you next week. Yep, see you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>